0: Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We've done 240 episodes of the show, Ben. We started in November 2017. We've got looks like 955 ratings on Apple Podcasts, which is it's not great. If we've done 240 episodes. If my math is right, that's like somewhere between 4 and 5 ratings per episode. And given the size of our audience, that's not great. So what I'm asking for, what I'm really saying is listeners, please do us a favor. I know it's a pain in the ass, I get it. But just do us a favor, if you enjoy the show, hop on to Apple, give us a review give us some stars, maybe even write a review. It really does go a long way.
1: Yeah. And if you are a good one, we'll read the funniest ones that we see on the show. There's some good ones in there, actually.
0: Some unintentional comedy there. Here's another plug that we're going to give. Two Fridays ago, we did a podcast, How to Start Your Financial Life. And we got a lot of great feedback on that. So thank you to everybody who listened to that one. In the show, we mentioned casually that you and I each have an account on Liftoff. We have personal accounts and probably 2 or 3 months ago. I opened one for my boys. You've got one for your three kids. If you're interested in checking that out, that's our automated asset management program that's powered by Betterment. The link is liftoffinvest.com. You got a real financial planner, you could speak to one of our employees. So again, that's liftoffinvest.com for people that are interested.
1: Yeah, and that's something that we're going to focus on a lot in the year ahead as something of uh, we think that's a great middle ground for people who aren't in the full wealth management space to have a full-time Wealth manager, but who still want to have some financial planning ability and investing, and we think that's a good middle ground, right?
0: So Matt's my financial planner there, and actually, I had a question from last week. Called him up, answered my question. It was good.
1: Yeah. All right, one more thing. I've never done fantasy football before. I'm not a nerd, sorry, like you.
0: No, no, no. You are a nerd Uh, because you don't do fantasy football, amongst other things. You're wearing a salmon shirt. No offense.
1: (laughs) At least you got the color right. Anyway, it's not because I hate it or anything. I just never got into it, and I used to play real football, so I thought it was kind of, I was always anti at the beginning.
0: By the way, I think we mentioned this one time on the podcast. I tried to like give you a softball, your modesty. You just blew it off. You played in the Silverdome?
1: Oh, yeah, in high school, yeah. Football was like religion in northern Michigan, so it was pretty big up there.
0: Wait, hold on. You're about to blow past it again. Just...
1: Well, I played in the state championship game twice. Twice? Yeah, junior and senior year. I was, uh, not to brag, I was all state twice, running back.
0: Okay, this is more news to me. I never knew that you were All-State. I knew that you played. The Silver Dome was where the Lions used to play. That was like a 90,000-person arena?
1: Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, I got to play there twice.
0: Did you run well in the games?
1: I had a touchdown my junior year. Huh? Yeah. I almost returned a punt for a touchdown my senior year. Won my senior year, lost my junior year. Anyway, so I, I never played fantasy football. I, I just, I never got into it. And I don't want to be the one who gets into it too late and, and is the patsy at the table. So that's kind of why I resisted. There's a new trading simulation game. It's kind of like fantasy trading and it's called Wealthbase, and we're going to give it a try. So you run these games for a month. It's more about the community aspect of it. I think, isn't that part of the fun of fantasy football, is that it's the trades back and forth and the emailing between people and the giving each other crap. Isn't that half the fun?
0: I mean, that's more than half the fun. You don't do it for the money. Certainly in the case of real fantasy football, you don't do it for the money. And the same thing with this. So if you go to wealthbase.com, you could see the featured game. It's called Can You Beat the Compound? And there's a few reasons why we're doing this. A, to Ben's point, it's going to be fun, I hope. I don't know if target date funds are on the platform.
1: There actually is a message board on here, and I've already gotten four or five people who've made target date jokes to me. So thank you for that.
0: There you go. So if you have younger people in your life that are interested in learning about the stock market, and people always say a paper portfolio doesn't simulate the real feel, to which I would agree, completely agree. But I think if nothing else, it gets you acclimated to the feeling of buying and selling, to the feeling of watching your stocks, even though it's not the real thing. I think it's probably better off for people to do this before they just jump into Robinhood, get a proof for options before they have no idea what they're doing.
1: Yeah, it's a way to test out and show you how hard trading can really be. Exactly. Because we think it'd be funny if one of us ended up in last place. I think that'd be hilarious. And it's quite possible.
0: Well, right now, we've already got 1,500 people signed up. There's no way. I mean, obviously, whoever wins, you know, that's going to be more luck than anything. I just hope I don't come in the bottom half. That's my hope.
1: All right. I think it'd be funny if one of us did. So again, go to wealthbase.com, and right on the front page, you'll see the picture of Josh, Michael, and I. You can play against this and that. It should be kind of fun. And actually, the winner gets a $300 Amazon gift card.
0: From Wealthbase. There's also a winner for second and third place.
1: Yeah. All right. I want to read you two stories of people from a Wall Street Journal article entitled, COVID Upended Americans' Finance is Just Not the Way You Expected. When the pandemic shut down the economy this spring, Walmart all but closed the department store where Christina Rogers works as an optician. Children's schools closed too. She thought she might have to dip into savings as they hunker down in St. George, Utah. Instead, her financial situation improved. Lower earnings dropped when she cut back hours to look after her children. Company bonuses and a federal stimulus check put extra money in her pocket. She bought stocks right before the market roared back this spring and refinanced her mortgage as interest rates plummeted. Now, here's the other side of it. They talk about this guy who owns a men's clothing store. Mr. Richards got a paycheck protection program loan and a state grant, but he had to close his storefront. He will continue through direct sales. His family of five has dug into savings in his retirement account. They got a forbearance on their mortgage and are stretching their groceries. And the takeaway here is that so far, Americans have on average managed quite well. They've paid down credit card debt and saved more, household net worth jumped, and their credit scores went up. But they say these encouraging statistics are masking an increasing unequal economy. Millions are out of work, facing permanent job losses. More people are going hungry. Hundreds of thousands of small business owners have closed shop. There's so much luck involved in all of this. So this one person got basically a bailout and her finances are improved and she's doing better in her life. This other guy, because he owns a small business, is basically more or less screwed.
0: And the small business that he owns, to your point in terms of being lucky, a men's clothing store looks like?
1: I guess my point here is just that there's so much more luck involved here than most people would think, especially this year. This year's like a demarcation line in terms of luck and skill. And so I guess my point is if you're doing really well, you should be grateful for being in a good place because there are obviously a lot of people who aren't and are having a much harder time, whether it's a health situation or their finances or whatever it is. I don't know how a lot of these people come back from this if they haven't been bailed out by the government because it's not like all of a sudden this stuff for most of these places comes back right away. It still could take a while.
0: I don't know. I don't think anybody knows.
1: We're going to talk about this. So Dave Portnoy at Barstool Sports has raised like $7 million now for small businesses. On the one hand, that's... Great. He's done this and he's surprising these small businesses. And if you watch some of the calls, he's doing these FaceTime calls. And
0: yeah, they're heartwarming. They're amazing. They're very
1: heartwarming. So I don't want to be that guy that like looks at a good thing and says it's a bad situation. But the fact that he has to do that and the government hasn't stepped up and helped these people, that's the other side of this that feels like it's not right, that he has to be the one stepping up to do this, right?
0: Well, hang on. I thought you were going somewhere else. You're getting into truth or territory here. Somebody tweeted, Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports, and this got ratioed into the Stone Age, has raised over $6 million for small businesses. He's already done more than Congress. No.
1: Nice try, but no.
0: <laughs> what did Congress do in March? Was it $2 trillion in relief? Yeah. And what is it right now? We're running at almost $4 trillion. Where I thought you were going to go out with that was, and all kudos to Barstool and Portnoy, I think what they're doing is amazing. This takes nothing away from what they're doing. Hear me clearly. I am not dunking. I am all for what they're doing. It's nothing but good. Okay, comma, but. Is he not an amazing marketer?
1: Oh, yeah, of course.
0: Right? The goodwill, and again, deserved, not taking anything away, but like the pivot to the trading to the this, it feels like he just makes one right move after the next.
1: He knows how to catch a wave, for sure.
0: There was a chart in the Wall Street Journal that showed stimulus in 2019, the government response versus what we did in the GFC. And it just dwarfs it. It's incredible to watch. You've been on this for a while now, but like, how is this not the playbook going forward? I guess maybe going forward, if there's a real recession, that's whatever, if it's too much credit buildup or whatever it causes it, I guess they could point to the COVID being a one-off and it's an extraordinary times.
1: It's basically political. I mean, so they're doing the Senate runoff in Georgia. Now, if you have one candidate who says, I want to give you and your family $2,000 checks. The other candidate says, "No, nah, I don't think so who do you think you're going to vote for? The CARES Act is probably going to go down as one of the most popular bills in history. Every time this is going to happen in the future where people are going to start, okay, you're going to give $2,000? i am going to promise $4,000 to every family. It's only political will or maybe runaway inflation. But even then, I don't see how this isn't just immensely popular. I'm sure they've done surveys of this to voters. What voters would be against these, maybe the people in the top 1% who aren't getting any of it?
0: Yeah. So again, getting back to these numbers things. So obviously, several trillion dollars is a lot bigger than the $6 million that Barstool did. Somebody emailed us. I heard a senator recently say something to a reporter, paraphrasing here. A trillion is what? A thousand millions? Wrong. That's a billion. A trillion is a thousand billions. Insane. Nobody can make sense of numbers this large. Idea for the show. Break down these numbers in terms of time. We feel time unlike we feel money. So I actually tweeted this, I don't know, I guess maybe back in March. I wrote, wow, they're talking about a $6 trillion stimulus package. Oh man, speaking of, I actually I forgot to read Larry Summers was against the $2,000 check. Did you read that piece? You have some thoughts? <sighs> He's
1: kind of a charlatan. How they portrayed him in the Facebook movie is sounds like it's pretty accurate.
0: What was his thing? So it's going to overheat the economy?
1: Yes. Let's just move on. He's a <laughs> <laughs> not a fan.
0: So I wrote, "Wow, they're talking about a 6 trillion dollar stimulus package. A trillion is such a big number that it loses all meaning. Here's some context. 1 trillion seconds is 31,000 Seven hundred and nine years. Two, three, four trillion dollars in stimulus. Are we pulling forward returns from the year thirty-six thousand four hundred and ninety-seven?
1: I don't know. I mean, counterpoint, like this is the one thing that could potentially increase economic growth. Because the demographics is destiny thing, I think, is most pertinent to the economy. We've gone from like a four percent world to a two percent world. You know what could actually increase that from two to four? Government spending Bitcoin? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Did you know that the dollar is down fifty percent in the last three months? That's why that's the only reason Bitcoin is up. I'm surprised you didn't know that.
0: Some of the Bitcoin charlataning going on is wild. I slacked this to you over the weekend. Reportedly, the Winklevoss owned one percent of all outstanding coins. So if that's true, then back in the envelope math shows that their net worth increased by two billion dollars over the last thirty days.
1: How have we not figured out who Satoshi is yet, though? Because don't that person or people technically own it all? How has that not come out yet? How have there not been a reporter who's figured it out? I mean, I don't know. Do you think that's a Silicon Valley thing, like inside the circles that's, they know?
0: I don't know. Whatever. What if it
1: was a really huge letdown who that person was? People go, oh, really?
0: That person? Oh, like, yeah, you take the mask off and it's that person, like Machine from 8mm, you're very disappointed. Yeah, what if it's just Naval? <laughs> all right, there's been talk between Bitcoin and the SPACs and the electric vehicles, and you name it. There's been, feels like a lot of froth in the markets, right? This kind of blew me away. The S&P 500 in the last six weeks, it's up 2%.
1: NASDAQ 100 probably down in that
0: time? No, no, no. No, no, no. NASDAQ's up more.
1: Okay. But still, the stock market is not really breaking away. It's, It's pockets of froth.
0: There is undoubtedly pockets of exuberance.
1: Which is kind of what we've been saying for six months now. That's what makes this so hard. It's the same thing, right?
0: Yeah, it's a weird thing to watch. So there was a chart from Bank of America Global Research showing the passive share in equities, in AUM. So again, this is an AUM. This is not the entire pie. But we're approaching 50%. And I don't know if you see what I see, Ben. I see a flattening.
1: So this is just for funds, though, obviously. Yeah, it's not all stocks. Correct.
0: Do you see that? I mean, obviously, what stands out is the mega growth. But it hasn't, it's been flat for, what, two and a half years, it looks like?
1: It's flat for index funds, you're saying. It continues to fall for active funds.
0: Yeah. So the other side of this is that the inflows into equity passive funds has stalled out. It's flatlined. The money keeps coming out of active funds.
1: So if it's not going into index funds, a lot of that active money that it's retreating is probably just people trading themselves again. Is that something that could continue to hurt active management where people say, why am I going to pay someone else to do it when I can just do this myself on Robinhood or wherever I can get free trades?
0: Uh, I don't know that the people on Robinhood slash the DIYers were active fund selectors. Maybe they were. I'm not sure that that's the same cohort. But I guess the big $30 trillion question is, what are these flows doing to the prices of the underlying securities? And there's a new paper, which I have not had a chance to skim to the conclusion yet, but it's from a person named Ralph Supple who tweeted, we show theoretically and empirically that flows into index funds raise the prices of large stocks of the index disproportionately more than the prices of small stocks. Flows predict a high future return of the small minus large index portfolio. And quote. Without reading this, I guess at face value, that doesn't sound too controversial. However, even though the index side of things are close to 50% of the AUM, they still represent a fraction of the trading. So my thought is that the active buyers and sellers are the ones setting prices. It's not the flows into index funds that are moving prices. Now, that's not what he says. This person says that we've proven it and who am I to discredit that I haven't even read it yet. I am curious to dive into this.
1: It doesn't make sense to me. If you're buying an index fund, you're buying in proportion to the stocks in that market. I don't see how it could possibly push up. I think there's got to be a correlation causation issue here, even though they use the word empirically. I'm sure this paper uses the word robust quite often. So it's got to (laughs) be... I don't know. This doesn't pass the smell test for me. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: So I got a text from uh, a friend of mine, not a financial person. Have you ever heard of ARK?
1: <laughs> it's hit the big time, huh?
0: So he opened up a managed account with an advisor that I guess put him in like the SMA version of it. So he's holding the securities uh, individually. We've been speaking about ARK for a while. Balchunas has been all over this. Balchunas actually this morning tweeted, and here's your mind-blowing ARK stat of the day. The volume on Christmas Eve, which was half a day in the stock market this year, was $541 million. On Christmas Eve 2019, it traded $4 million, So just a little 135 times increase, LOL.
1: I wrote about this last week where I did a little history of the hottest funds of the day. I went back to use some of your book, Big Mistakes in the 60s. I looked at the 80s, 90s, all these. And it was so funny to hear the pushback. And I used ARCA as an example of the money flowing in today. I said, I don't know what she's going to do in terms of performing. I talked about this last week, but the people flowing in today, they're going to underperform Arc's own performance. I'm pretty certain of that at some point because she's going to have a misstep or that style is going to go out of the limelight for a while and it's just not going to work. That's just how these things work. And a lot of people, it was two sides. One of them was saying, of course you're right. This thing is going to end in tears. And the other side said, no, 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 you don't realize. She's going to be able to shift to whatever the market does and she's so good at this, she can...
0: Come on. Yes. That's nonsense. Here's my big thing. Here's what I was going at, which I think I'm, I'm about to disagree with myself. Before I even say it, I already disagree with what I'm about to say. What I was going to say is it's very easy to look for contrarian indicators. And especially in today's day and age, when people have access to information, I'm getting it. I feel like every day, I'm getting a phone call from a friend, a relative, whatever. Ask me if I've heard of this stock or this fund manager.
1: Your plumber story was from three months ago, right? No, five. Five months ago? Okay. Yeah, exactly.
0: His portfolio is up almost 40% since then. Miles Udland was onto this concept and I'm paraphrasing here, but the opposite of nobody knows nothing, which is a quote that everybody who has ever written a blog post has used at least once, quote that we're both fond of. That was, comes from William Goldman, the screenwriter. Princess Bride, by the way, one of the best movies ever. The opposite of that is everybody knows everything. The stories of the shoeshine boy back in the day, I think Joe Kennedy told that story, said something like, when your shoeshine boy is giving stock tips, you know it's probably time to get out. Undoubtedly, that was the case back in the day when news traveled slower. But today... When news travels so fast, everybody knows everything. And the shoeshine boy, your plumber, your Uber driver, your whatever, they might know about things sooner than you do. Now, in the case of ARK, (laughs) given that it's 135 times increase, here's where I disagree with myself. It's okay to use these contrarian indicators at this point because it's gotten so massive. It's not early days. But I guess be careful using people as a contrarian indicator. That's just no way to go through life.
1: And the hardest thing about investing is always timing. You could be right about this and the timing's wrong and there's no distinction between you being wrong. But I included this in my first book of this email from a reader, the 1987 crash. And this guy wrote me in and said that they found out about the 1987 crash driving home from work on the radio. If that was happening today, we would be doing a minute by minute update of it on Twitter. Like I mean, we did when stocks were down 10%. You would know what's going on every single second of the day. Back then you had to learn about it either that night on the news or maybe the next day. So even that was whatever, 30 years ago things are so much different now in terms of information. And I agree that if you want a contrarian indicator, you can find one anywhere you look these days, no matter your stance. Okay. One more from the Wall Street Journal. And I think this might have to be a weekly highlight, the Wall Street Journal Reckless Investor of the Week. This one, it's investors, but they might have topped their one from before. So-
0: Where do they find these people? I don't. I honestly
1: don't know. if It's, it's an ad in the paper where they say, hey, are you taking reckless risks with your retirement? Please let us know. But I mean, again, to these people, this guy turned like- $23,000 in options on Tesla into $2 million. And he's buying houses for his family and he's buying everyone a Tesla. He said he sold his own home and used some of the proceeds to buy Tesla options.
0: I can't believe... like In hindsight, we were way too conservative, Ben.
1: This other woman said she's 53-year-old. It was life-changing for her and her husband. They now have a seven-figure portfolio, two-thirds of which consists of Tesla. And she says she doesn't think she will see another year of gains like 2020, but she has no plans to sell her Tesla stock either. And is open to the idea of borrowing more money. Here's her quote here, the coup de grace, using a Michael Batnick phrase. There we go. This is what wealthy people do, she says, borrowing against the money. I want to do one more because this is a great offset of it. So they talk about this guy, Joe Phoenix, who sounds like, I don't know.
0: Sounds like a porn star.
1: What was the Netflix show? The Joe? Uh, oh, the Tiger King? Sounds like the Tiger King guy.
0: Hey, Ben, let me ask you a question. So before you get to Joe Phoenix, Zoom is in a 37% drawdown. Do you think it's wise to sell my oldest child and buy <laughs> options?
1: Is it really down that much? Yeah. I didn't hear those. Okay. So this guy, he bet heavily against volatility. And this is in 2018. He had a $1 million position in those volatility. I don't know what he was using. Hopefully not XIV. But he was using margin debt. And it said he basically lost the majority of his money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars just gone. He said it was a devastating loss. Got it back into trading in the middle of 2019. Promised himself he wouldn't take that much risk again. The ending of here is he still trades leverage ETFs though.
0: Just for the love of the game, like me? I guess.
1: So maybe the thing is, you talked about like, is Robinhood good or bad? And I think some of this is these people cannot get out of these bad habits. This guy lost the majority of his portfolio trading these leveraged VIX ETFs and he's still doing it.
0: Is this a Robinhood issue? I mean,
1: yeah, this is just gambling. I don't know. I'm using Robinhood as a collective royal we here. Right, right. Anyway,
0: yeah, like I said, there's many sides here, there's a lot of things going on. People have always been gambling. People always found a way to blow themselves up. When commissions were 8 and $10, they were doing this.
1: It's hard to offer. So Chris Saka tweeted this. He said, everyone who got into trading stocks this year, I have a little hard truth here. You're not actually that good at it. You just caught a wild bull market. Take some money off the table.
0: These people aren't going to listen to that. I mean, I obviously agree with this. But at the same time, I really don't want to come off like the get off my lawn person. You know what I mean? Like, If there's a comeuppance and these stocks blow up, we don't win anything. No. So I'm not rooting for that. I guess what I'm rooting for is for common sense to intervene and I know it won't but I just hope that these people are careful I don't want them to blow up
1: just don't make it any worse and like lose it all
0: Where we have problems is when and I'm not accusing the Wall Street Journal of this but when you see stories like this and it's like trying to convince more people to get in because this is the way no this is not the way
1: Right you should look at again this is the luck thing again good for these people for doing it and holding on but these are lottery ticket bets
0: Right Okay personal finance this is from MarketWatch, an article by Brett Aaron's. According to IRS data, at the end of 2017, there were more than twice as many traditional IRAs as Roths, and they held about nine times as much money, $8 trillion compared with $841 billion for Roths. So this is a big debate. I feel like we get these questions all the time. Roth IRA, Roth 401k, or traditional? Do I take the tax break now, or do I take it later? And what they basically came away with, this is from uh, the Boston College researchers, four-fifths of households in retirement will pay an effective tax rate of zero or near zero.
1: Did you write this using a fraction instead of saying 80%? Four-fifths?
0: Fractions hit different.
1: (laughs) That's true. That's a huge... So 80% of people in retirement pay an effective tax rate of zero percent or nearly zero.
0: Take the tax break.
1: When I tell people this, especially young people, even if the money would technically be better, you get a better tax break when you're 65 or 70... It's going to mean more to you when you're younger because you're not as well off financially. So taking a tax break now, I think, is almost always a better bet than taking it in the future unless you have a ton of money and are really looking at these single-item tax deductions and going through with a tax advisor.
0: I think it's fair to say, know very little about taxes, that most people are going to be in a lower, sometimes substantially lower tax bracket in retirement than they are in their working years. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant, but that's just common sense.
1: So this is a pretty good myth-busting because the Roth has always seemed like a wonderful deal. You have the money, you don't pay any taxes on it. But yeah, I think especially for young people, the tax break now is going to do much better for you than the tax break later.
0: The top 1% by income in retirement, the average tax rate is 22.7%. So there you go.
1: Visual's Capital had this chart of the value of domestic equities held by the Bank of Japan. So they've been buying equities now for decade, it sounds like. A little longer. They started buying them in 2010. They now hold $434 billion worth of stocks, the Central Bank of Japan.
0: Is this a win for dollar cost averaging? (laughs) If
1: this happened, if the Fed said they were going to start buying stocks, Powell said, for the next decade, the Fed is buying stocks. Don't you think the markets here would go crazy? So in Japan, look, I looked at the numbers. The MSCI Japan ETF over the last, since then, since 2010, is up 80% versus a 260% gain for the S&P. They've had lower interest rates, and their central bank has been buying equities, and they still haven't been able to have like a rip-roaring market.
0: So now Show Japan works for multiple reasons. It works for people that use 89 as the peak to show that buy and hold doesn't work. Okay, fair enough. Not really, but okay. So when you say, well, US stocks are doing so well because of Fed intervention and low interest rates, they say, okay, well now Show Japan. But to your point, you spoke with us a few weeks earlier, it's a cultural thing. We are gamblers. We believe in a better tomorrow. We are a nation of stock buyers.
1: I think if the Fed did this, the markets would go crazy. I think there would be a huge, huge, huge update if, if they announced this, and people would go take the ball and run with it, or it didn't happen there.
0: I agree. Oh, question for you. Robin told me to get a bottle of wine for Kobe's teachers. So we got, I got a few bottles of wine. She said, spend 15 bucks a bottle. So okay. So I spent $15 on a bottle. So I get home. And Robin goes, you cheapskate. These bottles were $10. So I said, no, they weren't. They were $15. She goes, well, I looked them up and they were $10. You have to go back to the store and go get new bottles of wine. So, uh, okay, I went back to the store I got new bottles. When you get a bottle of wine, I don't know how often that is, do you check the price? As a gift? Yeah.
1: No, I kind of make a judgment based on the label. So if the label looks nice, I assume it's a nice bottle of wine. Oh, interesting. I'm making this up. But the wine tasting thing, I think if you say you can tell the difference between a $200 bottle and a $20 bottle, you're lying.
0: So if somebody gets me a bottle of scotch that I've never heard of, yeah, I'll check the label. But for a bottle of wine?
1: I wouldn't price check, no. Unless it was a two-buck chuck type of thing, then you'd know. But other than that, no, I wouldn't know. And honestly, I never buy a bottle of wine that's more than 20 bucks.
0: I don't think I've ever spent more than $20 a bottle of wine myself.
1: I don't think it's worth it. Okay. (laughs) Good question. All right. I think there may be some fibbing going on here. So On a Twitter rant recently, because Apple announced they're going to start maybe making cars, Elon Musk says, during the darkest days of the Model 3 program, I reached out to Tim Cook to discuss the possibility of Apple acquiring Tesla for one-tenth of our current value. He refused to take the meeting. This may have happened, but he's probably lying a little bit here, right? I don't know (laughs) if we can really trust it. I don't think he's telling the whole truth here. But if that's possible...
0: Where there's Musk, there's fire.
1: Wouldn't that have made sense, though? Because they have the iPad screen or whatever in the Tesla? I mean... You wouldn't get all the zealots like you have with Tesla now, so it wouldn't have been the same market growth or whatever that they've had. But I actually think that marriage would have made sense.
0: And if Apple bought them, maybe they would be worth one-tenth of the size still. Matthew Ball tweeted, Does anyone even know that CBS All Access big-budget Stephen King adaptation of The Stand came out a week ago? If it had aired on Netflix, HBO, Disney+, Plus, everyone would. Great point.
1: I honestly didn't know that there was such a thing as CBS All Access. Is that their streaming platform? I've never heard of it. Exactly. Okay. That's one of the best things Disney Plus and Netflix have going for them is just... Marketing. But it's word of mouth too. People talk about it on social media because it's on those platforms.
0: Did you read this article that I sent you from Amazon about what Amazon is doing, some of their, let's just say, uh, less than ethical practices? Yeah, I skimmed it. Here's a quote that I want to pull out. This is from a company, I think diapers.com. What Amazon did was against the law. They were selling diapers for below cost. But what were we going to do? Sue Amazon for antitrust? It would take years and tens of millions of dollars, and we'd be bankrupted by them. So this whole article was about how when Amazon sees third-party sellers on their platform, they basically just copy whatever they're selling, which, okay, whatever. But I went to the FTC's website. Listen to this.
1: Doing some channel checks, huh?
0: I am. Can prices ever be too low? The short answer is yes, but not very often. Generally, low prices benefit consumers. Consumers are harmed only if below-cost pricing allows a dominant competitor to knock its rivals out of the market and then raise prices to above market levels for a sustainable time. A firm's independent decision to reduce prices to a level below its own costs does not necessarily injure competition. It doesn't. And in fact, may simply reflect particularly vigorous competition. Okay. I mean, so there it is. Selling stuff below cost is not illegal. Not even close.
1: Maybe this is just us, but... I don't necessarily buy stuff on Amazon because it's the best price. I'm sure if I looked really hard, I could find better prices elsewhere. It's convenience. It's convenience. That's the whole thing. And maybe they got people, some people, because they thought the prices were lower. But I've seen mock-ups of price differences and saying Amazon is definitely not the best place for prices. And I don't care. If it allows me to not have to go out of the house and leave to go get something, and I know it's going to be there the next day, the convenience thing is way more important to me than the price. But I, I can understand why these other companies would be so mad.
0: So now it's an all-out assault against Shopify. Shopify had an aggregate sales of $5.1 billion over Black Friday weekend. That's a lot of money. Amazon's third-party sellers, for comparison, did $4.8 billion. So they're going after Shopify.
1: I mean, the whole Shopify thing, doesn't that show that people say, like, these are monopolies and no one can ever get any inroads there? That's a huge company now. They're a legitimate competitor, I guess, in some ways, to Amazon.
0: I almost feel like, I don't know if this is necessarily, if we've seen a paradigm shift, or this is just the availability bias. I'm just picking a few winners. But this was a good thesis for owning a stock in the last five years. They have no moat. Anybody could do what they do. Think about like Netflix, for example. All of the competition that they were going to see. HBO is going to get into streaming. Amazon's going to get into streaming. By the way, obviously both happened. Has not slowed Netflix down one iota. Zoom, for example. Why can't Skype catch up? What do they have that's so special? What else? I guess Shopify is another one. Why can't Amazon just crush them? Wayfair and Overstock, why can't Amazon just crush them?
1: Yeah, Best Buy.
0: Yeah, Best Buy. That question has actually been bullish. And again, I'm probably not showing the whole picture, but...
1: I mean, you could say the same thing with Uber and Lyft, because how hard is it for competitors to come in? That argument, it sounds easy, but good luck.
0: That's also like really insulting to the company and assuming that what they've built, that they have no culture, that they have no competitive advantage, no knowledge advantage, no execution advantage...
1: So the Michael Porter bears to entry thing has been disproven by the last five years. Is that what we're saying?
0: Everything's been disproven by the last five years. <laughs>
1: That's pretty true. Yeah. All
0: right. Let's move on to listener questions. I'm going to read one, Ben, to you. I was wondering if you had just gotten married to your wife and she wasn't knowledgeable about investing, what would be the best topics or sticking points that you would both would make to your significant others to try and show them why saving and investing early and often is so cool and beneficial? Probably a meme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Beneficial for sure. Cool is not necessarily... I've never been called cool for saving early. We talked about this in recent weeks where we did a How to Start Your Financial Life podcast. So if you want to listen to that, we'll, we'll put a link in it. Especially if someone who just doesn't understand it or has never gone through the whole compound interest thing and it, the light bulb never went off. I guess the way that I try to frame this now, my thinking is it's not necessarily like, oh, cool, we can retire when we're in our 60s because who in their 20s or 30s wants to hear that? That does nothing. That does not move the needle for anyone I think it's more about giving yourself options in life and showing that saving early and often can give you not only a margin of safety to do what you want in the future, but maybe do what you want now and take some risks. I don't know, move to a new city, try a new job, start a business, whatever it is. If you're saving and getting your finances in order from a young age, that just gives you so many more options in life.
0: How about this? The compound interest stuff, the line graphs, that's not going to hit home. But here's an idea. If you say to your significant other that we're going to be saving... $100 $100 a month, whatever it is, whatever you can afford, and we could spend everything else, maybe that's a good way to do it.
1: Yeah, right. Because spending is the other side of the equation that not too many people think about. Again, it potentially opens you up to spend more in the future. And But that's not an easy subject to breach, I think, for a lot of people, especially if someone is not just wired that way. Because some people just aren't. Some people just aren't wired to be good with their finances.
0: Somebody wrote this to us. It's not a question, but just more of a FYI. Just a quick little bit to add to your discussion about Nick's article regarding the tax benefits of using a tax-deferred account versus after-tax account over the long term. One thing he failed to incorporate into that analysis was your kid's post-secondary education. When you fill out the FAFSA requirement accounts that are not including your total assets, but after-accounts are. So when your kid goes to apply for financial aid, if all your money is in an after-tax account, the school's not going to give you any financial aid on a reduced amount. But if that's money in a tax-deferred account, IRA or 401k, it's exempt. And
1: before the show, you were just telling me that if... Tuition costs rise by 5% a year. We're going to have to save $20,000 a month to afford college. Is that it?
0: No, no, no. A year, a year. I know. I'm kidding. I'm going to do a post. Somebody asked us, if I want to pay for my child's entire college education, what am I going to need to save?
1: Right. And again, we've tried to look at this. People try to come up with a retirement number. It's always probably like a million bucks for someone. College tuition one is even harder because is it a public school or private school they're going to? Are they having scholarships? Are you getting any financial aid? There's so many other variables here. And a lot of them, you're just never going to know.
0: In-state, out-of-state, what's your return?
1: maybe it comes down to setting some boundaries with your children and being like, "Hey, listen, some people can only afford to pay community college for 2 years and then a public school, or I can only do a public in-state school, or some people are going to say I'm going to pay for whatever you want." So, maybe it's about setting boundaries and then that's a good discussion with your children to say, "Hey, you can go to public school here and I'm going to pay for it and you come out with zero student loans, or you can go to this private school that's 3 times as expensive, but you're going to pick up the difference either by having a job or." So, I think maybe that's a way to frame it where you figure out what you can realistically do and then it's a way to talk about finances with your children, too.
0: Yep. All right. Recommendations. What do you got?
1: I watched a million movies over the past week. Whatever. There's nothing else to do. We didn't do anything with family, really.
0: I'm upstate. I guess the location of where I am doesn't really is not material. But yes, I also watched a lot of movies this week. Uh,
1: the only TV that I've been really watching lately is Your Honor with Brian Cranston on Showtime. Thoughts? Three episodes in. I like it. It's very good and suspenseful. Part of it is I cringe sometimes at watching when things go bad, when there's just like one bad thing after another that happens to a character. Yeah, it's tough. I know that's part of this story and it's good, but it's like Oh, something else bad happens. And I watched The Born Identity because it was on rewatchables. I think that is the James Bond for my era. What do you think about that? The Born Identity series is James Bond for us.
0: I'm not exactly sure what happened here, but I saw that movie in the theater. When did it come out? Early 2000s. Okay. And I loved it. I haven't seen it since, and I never saw any of the sequels.
1: So I used to read all the Robert Ludlum books back in the day. Of course. Yeah. And it's good. Actually, the books are different than the movies in a lot of ways but I'm a huge Matt Damon fan and I loved all those movies even like the Jeremy Renner one I thought was good but the first one is by far the best we watched Soul on Christmas when it came out that movie was so freaking good so good <laughs> and the thing is it's not really even a kid's movie it's not yeah probably wouldn't have watched it if it wasn't for my kids and by the way kids got up early on Christmas day super early my daughter was up like 4 45 to get her back to bed but a bunch of jazz music in it really good music it was great for zonking out for a 20-minute nap as the kids were watching it mid-movie because I knew I was going to watch it again. But it's this existential movie about the meaning of life. But it was so well done. And like Pixar is just amazing to me, how they keep coming up with these creative and original stories. I loved it. And I loved the part about the hedge fund manager as a lost soul. So it's about your soul when you come into a body and come out of a body. And, but they talk about a hedge fund manager having a lost soul. Isn't that the easiest way to go, like showing an unhappy finance person, though? Because we rewatched The Family Man with Nicolas Cage, too. He's the unhappy finance guy. That's a layup right? If you show a finance person that's unhappy, that's an easy one. Of course, we watch Die Hard. I just love the fact that Hans Gruber, the bad guy says, by the time they figure out what went wrong, we'll be sitting on a beach earning 20%. Here's my question for you. Did the Fed do away with heists? Because there's no, <laughs> you can't steal bearer bonds for 20% anymore.
0: Uh, Can we
1: thank the Fed? Okay, one more. Midnight Sky with George Clooney on Netflix came out. How bad? Okay. A lot of people hated this and gave it really bad reviews.
0: I liked it. There you go.
1: I went in with a low expectation. It was actually pretty good. Clooney wasn't even that good, but they had an amazing space scene. You know when people are fixing something on a spaceship or a spacecraft?
0: Like in uh, Gravity.
1: And you know something bad is going to happen? I had like, a lot of bad reviews, and afterwards I was like, maybe the low expectations helped. I actually liked it.
0: All right, so I'm going to piggyback on that and say that expectations are everything. I really liked the first Wonder Woman. It was an excellent movie. I'm very glad that I saw people less than thrilled with the new Wonder Woman. So I went into that movie expecting nothing. If I went to a theater and saw it not knowing anything, I probably would have walked out pretty disappointed, maybe a little angry. There was a lot of problems with the movies. I totally get it. But I guess it's an expectation. Like I said, because I wasn't expecting much, I liked it. And I get that it made no sense. Like really, truly no sense. Matter of fact, Saul was so freaking creative. It was just so beautiful and brilliant. And Wonder Woman, this is what they came up with. Did you watch it?
1: Not yet. But I mean, don't they have to run out of storylines eventually for these movies? They've done so many superhero movies.
0: The storyline was just really not good and all over the place. And okay, enough bad things.
1: Was it at least entertaining? Yeah, I liked it. Okay.
0: I did. I'm not going to say it was a good movie. I think
1: you're the first person I've heard say that.
0: I'm not saying it was a good movie. I will not argue. I do not care to debate. It was not a good film, but I liked it. I thought Pedro Pascal as a type two charlatan, was fantastic. He was deliberately ripping people off. It was fun. So if you go in with the right mindset, I think you could have a good time. I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. I assume you've seen it?
1: Yeah. That was like my mom's favorite movie.
0: Okay. So I saw it this week and just beautiful, right? You liked it? Okay. Oh, I loved it. What's not to like?
1: Jimmy Stewart was a one of a kind for sure.
0: I mean, I'm sorry it took 35 years, but I righted that wrong.
1: I had a girlfriend in high school who made me go to a play of It's a Wonderful Life with her parents. That's a bit much. That was a little over the top, yes.
0: Yeah, I would draw the line there. But yeah, no, excellent movie. Okay, lastly, Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining with Ewan McGregor as grown-up Danny.
1: I've actually never seen The Shining before.
0: Okay, watch it. Okay. It's a good movie, a very good movie. So Doctor Sleep was... Like The Outsiders, that crappy, in my opinion, that Stephen King. Was that HBO this year or was that last year? Yeah, that was this year. It was this year? Okay. So Stephen King, both Stephen Kings. It was good. I don't think this got great reviews. I was not expecting much.
1: When did it come out?
0: Doctor Sleep? Yeah. Mm, 2019. Okay. I Never heard of it. It was a, a fine movie. Some scares, good story, throwback to the original. It was very good.
1: All right. So speaking of movies, we are going to record some of our favorite recommendations of the year. And we've actually had people ask this, like, could you keep a list of them somewhere? We've just never got around to it. Maybe we need to hire an intern for the show.
0: (laughs) I got a mental list. Okay.
1: So we're going to do our favorite TV shows, favorite movies.
0: Podcasts. Favorite
1: podcasts. Blog posts. Some of our favorite blog posts and some of the ones that were the most popular, some of the stuff we've talked about here. So we're going to do that. That's going to be Friday, kind of our year in review, Animal Spirits year in review, something like that.
0: In conclusion, go to liftoffinvest.com, leave us a review at iTunes, and go to wealthbase.com and email us animalspiritspod@gmail.com. at gmail.com.